Okay, uh, welcome everybody. Uh, again, uh, this is uh, Peter and Doug here. And uh, today we're going to be discussing uh, the 1979 uh, Disney epic, uh, The Black Hole, helmed by uh, Gary Nelson. Can we change it to something else? It was... <laughs> I don't even... I, I, we have to make this a shorter one because I don't know if I want to talk about it for that long. It was, I mean, actually, it could be more more fun being a mystery science theater three thousand style podcast. Uh, no, I think there's, I think there's serious stuff to say about it. You know, by the way, that this movie was directed by the same person who directed Freaky Friday, which kind of tells you a little bit of everything you need to know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I saw Freaky Friday, but it can't be worse than this. <laughs> okay, do you want, do you want to do the summary? Sure. So uh, the summary is uh, these a bunch of people that uh, you don't care about at all in the movie are flying back in their spaceship. They accidentally stumble upon a black hole and a long lost uh, ship near it. Um, it turns out that the the last survivor on the ship is evil. He's he wants to do some evil thing with the black hole. And then there are a bunch of explosions, and I don't really know what happens to the end. Yeah, we'll have to uh, debate the, the meaning of the end. Although I have to confess, I think I understand the ending perhaps for the first time now. Wow. And Slim Pickens is in it. <laughs> that, well, his voice. Right. But I think that's worth noting in the summary that Slim Pickens, of all people, is in this movie. Yeah, well, so is Anthony Perkins, and uh, yeah. he doesn't kill his mother. No, although I think but, Anthony uh, Perkins might be the most miscast person in the history of Disney. Like, like, I mean, he's he's well cast as his part, but you know, you could imagine somebody at Disney headquarters was like Anthony Perkins, really that guy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a week uh, ago we then, were making you know uh, the Aristocats. <laughs> now we're making now we're hiring Anthony Perkins. Right. So, um, so in the end, uh, a bunch of really confusing stuff happens and think things explode. And that's, 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 that's pretty it. much it. Um, it's kind of like if you just take a really, you take the, the ending of 2001 and make it really terrible and crappy, then you get this, <laughs> you know? Um, so it, it opens with the, uh, Palomino, um, Actually, you know what? Before we get to that, it's actually worth noting that it does open with a pretty decent CGI scene. It's actually apparently the first CGI scene ever shown in a movie. Uh, over You're forgetting the, about the overture. No, yeah. <laughs> I was talking about There's the opening an overture. credits. Uh, but over the opening credits, that's apparently the first uh, CGI film and a sort of CGI scene in a wide-released film. Um, and and the score is not bad. I mean, again, there's a lot to attack in this movie, but they actually did commission a real score. Uh, which well, the is guy that wrote the score is John Barry. He's a James Bond. Yeah, he's a right. James Bond guy. And it's actually not bad. And again, like the opening scene, I, I distinctly remember being sort of enthralled by the opening sort of CGI uh, when I saw it in the theater as a kid. So, mm-hmm. and then we we meet the crew of the uh, the Palomino. Who you know, it was it was funny. I wasn't quite sure. Were they supposed to be scientists? Were they supposed to be in the military? They wear. Very, very clean and, and well-pressed uniforms, uh, but the inside of the ship looked, you know, discordant with the outside of the ship. Like, the outside of the ship looks all sort of, like, beat up and rusty, but the inside looked pretty clean. Like, it was sort of like they couldn't decide if they wanted to go with the sort of Star Trek clean look or the 
Star Wars retrofitted, banged up look. So they kind of sat well, on the probably, fence and did both. Well, they hired, you know, the, most of the movie is is clean and retro. And they probably, one of the effects guys they hired probably had worked on Star Wars or something or was an ILM devotee and um, and decided to make the exterior look worn and it just made it through somehow. Right, but again, but, and, but even the Cygnus too looks worn on the outside, but it doesn't look worn on the inside. So they had the same problem on both ships. You know, like the inside and the outside don't match. And like, for example, again, we're going to talk a lot about Star Wars in this because the influence of Star Wars is just on virtually every single scene of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the Millennium Falcon looks beat up and crappy on the outside and the inside. You know what I mean? Like it looks concordant, whereas these ships are discordant, I think. Like the set design and the model design don't work. So well, the outside looks like Star Wars. The outside ships kind of look like in maybe an, a period science fiction film, and the inside looks like 1952. Sort of, um, sort of, minus the holograms. Right. Well, they, you know, they, they hired a few effect guys, but I mean, the movie, I mean, it really, it's, I mean, can you imagine, you know, Star Wars starting with an overture? Well, I don't. I don't you know, think that the movie started with an overture. I think that that was just on the DVD version. Like, I think you're right. Yeah, I just it didn't. The, in right, the theater, the, it just went into it. It just went, went way, into the, the little CGI sequence. But there's narration in the beginning. That's that's really, really kind of golden age. And there's, um, I mean, it's the same year Alien came right. out, and it's so, two years after Star Wars came out. Well, you know, out. it's funny. It's very funny that you say that because. I thought not once, not twice, but 50 times watching this, this is the same year as Alien. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I kept coming back to Alien in my mind. It's also the same year as Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, yeah. And we'll, we'll, I think we'll, we'll touch on that a lot. Um, let's say a few words about the cast. Um, so, Max Schell uh, as um, Dr. Reinhardt slash Captain Nemo. Um, no, essentially, I mean, it's essentially the same part, right? Uh, and the Cygnus mm-hmm. is essentially the Nautilus. Uh, and mm-hmm. Anthony Perkins astonishingly shows up essentially playing Anthony <laughs> Perkins. Like, he's pretty much the same character he was in Psycho. He's sort of like the, the weird oddball loner who sort of falls under uh, Max Reinhardt's spell, you know, sort of with his dream to fly the Cygnus through the wormhole. Uh, 70s icon Robert Forster, right? I think known to a lot of younger viewers from his role in Jackie Brown. Right. right? Uh, Joseph. Well, probably not, but well, probably not yeah. known to them. <laughs> Joseph Bottoms uh, plays Mr. Pizer, who I don't think I ever saw in another film after this. Uh, Yvette Mint. Vincent Borgnine. Right. I actually, I actually love Ernest Borgnine. I, I, I've, Ernest Borgnine. I've right. seen him in all sorts of stuff. I always think he does a. A good job. You have to remember, you know, people make fun of Ernest Borgnine. He actually won Best Actor. Uh, well, he's been in a. T- he was in a ton of stuff. No, I know, but people sometimes, like you know, he did a lot years. of junk in his life. But people forget that he won Best Actor in 1955 for Marty, which, if you've never seen it, is a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting, Yvette Mimio. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, mm-hmm. She's essentially the only woman in the entire movie, and. You know, I thought she was, no disrespect to Miss Mimio, I thought she was 50 years old. And I looked it up. She's 37 in this movie. Like, they gave her perhaps the most 
dowdy haircut they possibly could have found. Because if you look at other images of her online from her other productions, she is stunning. And in this, yeah. she is not. You know, like they just gave her kind of a like a dowdy, unpleasant look. Well, Disney characters don't have any privates. No, no. So she's. I think you know, Vincent might have, but. <laughs> yeah, Vincent might. I think that was one of the letters in the in Vincent. <laughs> Vincent dash P. Um, so Vincent is obviously the robot who is essentially a flying fusion of R two D two and C three PO. He looks sort of R two D two ish, and they found the only other human who could sort of pull off an Anthony Daniels rip off and get away with it in in the guise of Roddy McDowell. And then right. uh, Slim Pickens is the voice of uh, the Houston manufactured Bob. <laughs> I think he got the part because I think um, Anthony Daniels and Roddy Mc- McDowell were dating at the time. <laughs> oh, terrible. <laughs> well, what do you want? It was a cheap shot. Um, uh, By the way, yes, he's the fusion of C-3PO and R2-D2. However, he's ex- ex- totally uncool. In a, in a way that, well, that you does know, not... Well, you know, I don't know. I have to disagree with you a little bit there. Like, I actually think that the the Vincent uh, prop looks pretty good and it has a lot of functionality to it. Uh, you know, like, there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, you know, he has sort of armatures that come out at interesting places. Like, again, I, I can't say that after this I'm a fan, but I will not lie to you. I came away kind of impressed with vincent vincent by the way is the hero vincent does everything in the movie right he's he's smarter than everyone yeah he's smarter and more capable um vincent by the way the full-scale working vincent prop still exists um and was auctioned off at the july 2013 profiles and history auction with a starting bid of forty thousand, and there's uh, it, it still works. Really? Yep, it still works. That and, much money? Yeah, no, well, but you know, it's a hero prop, and like I said, it's in it's an extremely good condition. There's photos and video of it that you can see on the internet and YouTube, and it's in extremely good condition. It's got a little scratch or two, but it's pretty much as it appeared in 1979. Like I was impressed with how it uh, somebody somebody cared for that prop. Um. I kind of felt like the um, – oh, we should – by the way, we should talk about Maximilian a little bit. Right? right. Maximilian being Reinhardt's the sinister evil robot. red robot who never speaks. Right. He's got these spinning, not very scary blades. Right. They're really more hooks out. than blades. Yeah. They're sort of spinning sp- hooks. And, and he, he, he is – I guess he has one, you know – facial posture which is essentially the robotic version of a glare right he's kind of like a red cylon right <laughs> with spinny so so the the, the palomino uh, flying through space on a mission that that is never ever defined uh kate uh the the yvette mimio character says that they were looking for habitable life which makes no sense I don't know if you noticed that. I'm not quite sure what she habitable. She said that? Yeah, she said they're on a mission looking for habitable life. I'm, uh, <laughs> moving on. Um, <laughs> they, Wait, you're surprised the dialogue was bad then, at one Right, at one, and then on I guess line? they're on their way back to Earth. And what's interesting is that, you know, these guys, I get the distinct impression these guys have been in this little can uh, for a long time, but there's not a lot of, like, chumminess. Like, you know, you don't get the sense that they're pals after flying around. 
And you almost don't get the sense that they know each other very well. Well, it's there's just not much character development. No, there's there's practically you don't really none. care. And like for example, At least I didn't. Uh, the Ernest Borgnine character, it's mentioned that he's a, some sort of journalist or newspaper writer, if there's newspapers in a couple hundred years. Um, but he doesn't really <laughs> there's do not even anything. There's newspapers now. Right. That's, what, that's my point. But he doesn't even really – he never really acts like a journalist. Um, and then They should have given him a fedora. <laughs> with a little press card. Um, <laughs> uh, and then they – you know, they sort of come upon the black hole by – by happenstance, which you would imagine they would kind of notice that. Like, I, like they, they're awful close before they notice it, you know? Right. Like... I guess Vincent wasn't paying attention at that point. Yeah, and again, and then once they see the black hole, there's a ton of exposition. And actually, I thought the whole movie was really marked by a tremendous amount of exposition. You know? Mm-hmm. As they sort of have to explain what a black hole is and how it works. And then they encounter the, the Cygnus, which uh, Kate's father was on, yet she fails to recognize it, right? Like, they have to right. have the computer run through uh, three or four other ship designs until the computer says, hey, oh, this is, by the way, the ship your father was on, right? You, wouldn't she right. notice? Well, she forgot the name. Right, but it's still, the it doesn't Cygnus look like any of the other ships that the, the computer shows them. I know. That's why the computer wasn't very helpful because it puts up like totally shapes that are not even remotely like a sphere. It's like the Death Star. Thanks, thanks computer. Um, and, you know, uh, in the first bit. Where and that's supposed to be dramatic. That's supposed right. to be a, a main source of dramatic tension is the fact that her dad, who's been lost, who she, you know, she never knew what happened to her dad. And, right. and now there, there's the ship. And, you know, that's supposed to be really a sort of a central dramatic point and character development point but for her. But you feel nothing. They, right. It's just completely empty. Well, and it's again, because, you know, there's no buildup, you know, was not the ship your father was on? Yes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Why, yes, it was Anthony Perkins. <laughs> um, you know, a word on wire work. Uh, I mean, this movie is a wash in wire work. Um, and, you know, I thought that most of the time you're very, very aware that they're simulating zero gravity by suspending the actors from wires. And honestly, the wire work only really works for Vincent and Bob. Like, even even Maximilian sways a little bit. Um, right. But Although there is a scene where uh, Vincent Borgnine gets to float around, and I, I was pretty impressed. Yeah. <laughs> Those were the heavy-duty wires. <laughs> but I mean, uh, uh, I'm sure he wasn't enthused about that. No, no. But again, like with the the human wire work and all the sort of floating scenes, like it's just, it's very distracting. Like it's, it, but they're it's because they're showing it off. They're really. I know, proud I of know. It. But it, it, they're they're just. I don't know. Like I, I found myself like squinting and staring. And you can see the wires in a few <laughs> scenes. Usually you can't. You know, and it, it makes right. you realize, by the way, what a genius Kubrick was because in two thousand and one. Uh, there's a fair bit of wire work and the wire work in 2001 is done in a completely different way. So here the actors are suspended with the camera to the side in 2001, whenever they did wire work, the 
person was suspended from above and the camera was below looking up. So there were no wires to see. They were completely right. invisible and they didn't have to sort of dance around it. And for example, the scenes in 2001 of um, when Frank is killed and Dave goes out to um, you know get his body, that's all wire work and it looks not a hundred times better than this, perhaps a thousand times better than this. And you know? it's 10 years earlier. Right, and, and, and it's just because they thought about it and they did it in a, in a sort of simpler and more clever way. But anyway, but, um, but I thought that Vincent's wire work and Bob's wire work was pretty good, actually. And they do some clever yeah. stuff with Vincent. Like they, you can tell that sometimes Vincent is supported by a rod coming out of his back so he can rotate around it. And I thought that was sort of clever. And um, He spins around a lot. He spins around a lot. And I thought that the way that they moved Maximilian, you could tell that Maximilian had multiple attachment points and very, very similar, to, for example, um, to the Nomad prop in the uh, Star Trek episode, The Changeling, uh, you know, both sometimes Vincent, some, sorry, sometimes Maximilian is suspended from above and other times Maximilian is clearly on a wheel dolly. Right. Um, but, you know, it was good at least. Well, they, they both are they, sometimes. Right. But it's good that they gave themselves the flexibility to do that. You know, and the, for example, just like the way that, again, Nomad, you can see, is sometimes suspended by a wire when they want to show his, his base. And other times he's on a dolly when they want to, you know, track with him. Um, Nomad has more personality than most of the characters in this movie, Nomad, too. Yeah. Although the changeling is exceptionally well done. Uh, I mean, right. I mean, the, the changeling really holds up, but we're getting it. We're, we're getting off topic. Um, you know, sort of to come back to this is, you know, the same year as Alien, you know, when you're on either the, I don't know what you thought, tell me if you disagree, but when you're on the Cygnus or the Palomino, you know, my brain was like, they're on a soundstage, you know, this looked like a set, but then, you know, when you're on the Nostromo and Alien, you're in space. You know, it yep. doesn't feel like a set. It feels like a spaceship and not a spaceship you'd want to be on, but a, a, like a true spaceship. Yep. And not not to mention Star Wars and not to mention, again, 2001. Right. Or even, I mean, or, or again, since we're in the same year, the motion picture. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. That, I mean, that's why to, this movie to me, it was it's such an anachronism in so many ways. It just, it, it doesn't fit. With that time, even even the score. Granted, the score is great. You're right, but it's very fifties. It's really nineteen fifty four ish. You know, it, it is a good score, but it, it's really it. It's to me, it's almost like you know. Maybe this is part of the summary that I'm putting in the beginning, um, but the it's like Disney when Disney makes cartoons, they're timeless. Uh, there's not much difference between a cartoon that Disney made, whatever came out in the late 70s, and what came out in the 40s. Right, because um, they had figured it out. Right, and the, they're the same. And they apply that to the, to this movie as well, with a couple of small exceptions here and there, where they, you know, they had hired somebody, like you said, you know, the exteriors, um, the model work and the exteriors looks different. Some of the matte painting looks different. Some of the effects are are more modern, but... Other than that, the rest of the movie is is a, is an anachronism. It's it's approached in a similar way to their cartoons. Right. It's sort of a retro homespun feeling um, movie with a lot of expository dialogue for twelve uh, year olds. And I guess, I mean, this day and age when most movies 
that that's the only people like the only audience going to the theater anymore. So most movies are made for 12 year olds. You know, I, I, I guess I can't fault them and they sold a bunch of toys and they judged the science fiction audience pretty well. And that was our age group, you know, when this movie came out, I distinctly but, remember seeing some of the toys. I didn't have any of them, but I distinctly remember and I knew somebody who had a little Maximilian figure, which I secretly coveted. Sure. Actually not so um, secretly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm you know I'm sure they sold a lot of Vincents and Maximilians yeah, I, uh, with I'd little laser now. extensions. I thought Vincent was actually the best thing in the whole movie. Um, hmm. Only if it came with Roddy McDowell <laughs> to do the voice, <laughs> just crammed into the little toy. Um, at least a digitized but version. But you could imagine, though, the enormous pressure Disney felt to make a sci-fi movie. I mean, like they to you know, compete. They're looking. At, they're looking at Fox. You know, and, and these other studios coming out, Columbia coming out with these, you know, close encounters are like they're watching hundreds of millions of dollars pass them by, you know. Right. So they were like, well, we've got to do this. It almost doesn't matter if it was good or not, because, you know, in the end, this thing made money. You know, it, it turned a mm-hmm. modest profit. But again, it was like riding on coattails. Oh, of course. Of course. Uh, but you know, like the the fingerprints of Star Wars are so heavily on this. Like they, you know, they they almost didn't even bother to hide it. You know, the way Vincent is the merger of C three PO and R two D two. The the um, the soldier robots, the red robots, are for all intents and purposes the stormtroopers. The black robot Star is for all intents and purposes made to look like Darth Vader, or even though it doesn't act like Darth Vader. Um, you mean the uh, Parkinsonian goose-stepping red robots? Right, uh, right. Red robot guards? Well, and you know what was strange <laughs> about them is I thought that they, um, you know, in when, when Ridley Scott made Alien, you know, he, he was so desperate to have the monster not be a guy in a suit. And in the end, after a ton of tests and different, you know, tries they realized we got to have a guy in a suit so they made a bizarre suit and they got a very very unusual guy to be in it like the guy who played the alien was exceptionally tall and exceptionally thin whereas here the robots they really make no effort to hide that they are guys in suits like they're all slightly different heights and they walk like guys in suits uh, which I thought yeah. was odd because these are supposed to be the actual robots as opposed to the the crew who are, you know, supposed to be robots who we discover later, gasp, are actually people. Uh, right. But the- and that's the only slightly disturbing and scary moment is when they take the face mask off and they have a good zombie makeup on the. And, you know, and my question is, is the guy they pull the mask off of, is that supposed to be Kate's father or just a random dude? I think it's just a random guy, but. I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not know. sure. It's possible either way. They, they, they never really say. Yeah, they don't. But you know, and they, you know, they miss a lot of opportunities. I think. You know, they see uh, one of the the quote unquote robots having a funeral. The garden is too big. Um, like they, they hint in so many heavy handed ways that they're not. <laughs> actually robots that when they actually (laughs) have have the reveal you know no one is surprised i remember as a 12 year old being like they're people dad you know whispering to my father 
um, <laughs> before the, the moment of the reveal, but they didn't really have to do that. But maybe they felt you know, that you, they did. You woke your dad up, by the way. That was mean. <laughs> no, he was probably cursing me and my brother for <laughs> dragging him to this dog. Oh, God. Um, you know, just another word or two on the robots. Um, there are some decent effects when the robots, you know, get shot or break up. You know, they had some sort of interesting maquettes or props uh, to sort of show, you know, innards. I thought that was sort of that was sort of interesting. But I also didn't understand why the robots were so emotional. You know, like like for example, there's a scene where uh, Bob and and Vincent engage in a sort of shooting match of sorts uh, for target practice, and like. You know, the black robot star is essentially star. kind of like like competitive and, and smug and, and kind of a dick. Like, why would a robot yeah. be a dick? Like, like, oh, I need to what? write that. I need to code that dick subroutine. You know, like, what? Like, well, why would you do well, that? Why do the robots bet? Why do the robots bet and have a, a little, like, canteen where they're shooting stuff and trying to compete with right, each other? Right, anyway. hanging out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's going on over there? <laughs> well, this just doesn't make any sense. Like, no. Like, you know, like, we're supposed to believe that, you know, like, did Reinhardt build and program those robots or did or did they come later? I think they say at some point that. Uh, I thought he did it. I think he. Yeah. I just want to see if there's a toy about the shooting gallery, because then that would kind of explain, you know, that would explain them putting that in there for merchandising purposes. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to look it up, but it's too uh, too difficult. So Maximilian Schell as Reinhardt does a ton of scenery chewing in this. I mean, that's essentially his <laughs> whole part, uh, yep. you know, as the mad scientist. And he has a plan to fly through the black hole, uh, and, and his idea is to come out the other side, uh, which is absolutely moronic on the face of it, but... That's that's the motivation. That's his motivation. But then you know that's their story, and they're sticking to it. Right. Well, he just <clears throat> he's just supposed to be a, a crazed, generally evil scientist. Uh, not only he's he's personally deplorable, deplorable in general, and it's not even like you know he's sort of a James Bond villain. You know, he's really he's really evil in general. Plus, he has sort of this science interest on the side where he really wants to see what the black hole is going to do. But they, the two things don't necessarily meet or explain each other. No. He's just a he's just a dick um, besides that. And, you, you know, you kind of get the feeling that everyone in this movie is just kind of glad for the check, you know, like mm-hmm. no one really. I mean, Maximilian Schell, he actually put some effort into his part, but you can see like he's kind of like, oh, this doesn't make any sense. Whereas the other guys, you know. They're just they're they're like oh my agent called a, a part I'm in what what is it you know <laughs> like they took the part before they knew what it was but you know like right. Max Shell I mean he's a pretty good actor like if you kind of look through his filmography I mean it is no joke I mean he well, he bunch, was in everything for decades yeah I mean a lot of them are a lot of this is this is a very it's experienced crew you yeah. Know? And even, you know, even Robert Forster, you know, or Borgnine, sure. I mean, they're experienced actors. But again, it's a weird grouping of people, especially for a Disney movie. And like the biggest flop of all, I think, is Joseph Bottoms as Mr. Pizer, who comes off, as, you know, like he makes Will Decker 
from Star Trek, the motion picture, <laughs> look, you know, exciting and dynamic, you know, he's just a sort of bland, blonde action hero. I don't know. And, and again, so an- anachronistic, I mean, unbelievable. And then the, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really amusing. So again, we're going to throw this movie under the bus in about four hundred ways. Um, right. But there were some things that were good. Again, I want to come back. I thought that the score is good. I thought that the Vincent prop is terrific, and there's one great effect in this movie. There's truly one great effect, and that is the black hole out the window. And a lot of scenes. Yeah, that looks great. And a lot of scenes when they're on the Cygnus. You can see the sort of rotating black hole in the distance out the window, and it's a very, very good effect. It, it looks great, and it sort of mm-hmm. it creates in your mind. It c- constantly reminds you their proximity to the hole and, it, you know, the element of danger. Like, oh, my God, they're right there on the edge of it. That, I thought, was a very good effect. I think that's actually the best effect in the whole movie. Oh, by far. It's the only thing that I actually wanted to look at uh, for more than a second. You know, you sort of whenever there's a scene, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, well, there's a, you know, every scene where the black holes there, you're just sitting there staring at the black hole spinning. You're not even watching the actors. Right. Well, it reminds me of like, you know, when screensavers came out in the 90s, you know, like the screensavers were more interesting to watch, you know, like the sort of bouncing lines, you know, or the, right. the, 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 the whatever the fish, you know, that was more interesting yeah. than the work you did on the computer in the 90s. It sort of reminded me of that. Um, oh, you know, one more point about the cast that um, I, I've just realized was the, the other three movies that we've been talking about, 2001, uh, Alien, Star Wars, basically had mostly unknowns in the cast with, you know, a couple cameos. Um, right. But this, this, is this the movie's opposite. the opposite. Right. right. They, they hired a bunch of big guns. Right. And who, who couldn't really kind of deliver. Ironically, you know, Mark Hamill, 20 year old Mark Hamill, straight from a Corvette summer, co-starring Annie Potts, no less, uh, you know, holds your interest and captivated children across the globe in Star Wars. Whereas, you know, uh, Academy Award Best Actor Ernest Borgnine, you know, kind of, you know, casually strolls through this movie, you know, counting his paycheck. Right. You know, um there's a couple of characters that sort of turn out to be sort of bad. I mean, obviously the Max Reinhardt character is a villain. The Anthony Perkins character is almost kind of a villain too. He's sort of, you know, captivated and taken with Reinhardt that, you know, he basically at the first opportunity says, I'm going to join this guy, you know, screw all of you. I'm going to join this yeah. guy and fly into the black hole with him. And then for reasons absolutely unclear to me, Ernest Borgnine becomes a villain at the end. Like, what? <laughs> like, all of a sudden, he's the bad guy? Like, there's a scene uh, where, you know, when, when, when everything is falling apart, he fakes an injury and runs back to the Palomino to steal it and basically leave right. everybody to die. But where does that come from? There's no hint at all the entire movie that he has the capability to do that. Like, you would imagine that Ernest Borgnine would have been like, hey, this doesn't make any sense, but they they do it. Au contraire, I, I think he ad-libbed it because he was trying to get off the set <laughs> and get out of there. Right. <laughs> so this is what developed. They actually just they filmed him running it. off the set. They just filmed him running <laughs> off the set and then rewrote the scene so that it made sense. 
<laughs> right. He actually, they workshopped this movie and, it, and as they were doing it, every time there was a scene with Ernest, Ernest Borgnine, he was running away. Right. That of the craft table was just open, you know, so he was hungry. Um, and, and you want to say a few words on Slim Pickens? Um, Slim, well, Slim Pickens gets an, un- actually, Roddy McDowell and Slim Pickens are uncredited as the voices of the two good robots. Are they, yeah, are they in the tail end credits or they're not in the beginning? Um, I don't know I, if I they buried them somewhere. The credits by the time I, by the time it faded to black, usually I watch the credits to the end, but I couldn't. I actually would have preferred to watch the credits <laughs> than the rest of the movie, I think, but I in fact did not. Uh, Slim but, Pickens uh, is pretty much playing Major Kong from uh, Doctor Strange Love again. Yep. Although perhaps He's you could the, argue that Slim Pickens really just plays Slim Pickens. Well, that exactly. <laughs> He's just being. They hired him because he Slim Pickens, and they wanted to bring the vibe to the the Slim Pickens vibe to the to the good robot, the good old boy uh, Texan robot who's all beat up, right? And is the only he, you know the, uh, only, the, thing only, that, the only thing that Bob left. was missing was a flask. Like if he had had a little robot <laughs> booze, it would have been perfect. You know, or they were drinking oil. Right, exactly. By the way, uh, have you ever looked at Slim Pickens' filmography? No. I mean, this guy made a hundred westerns. I mean, right. I, like literally a hundred westerns. I don't think they got paid a lot of money for those westerns. They were cranking them out. Oh, I'm sure. Back I'm in the sure. Day. But I mean, he, you know, they he were worked, they were B and C Slim pictures. Pickens worked without interruption from the 40s till the 80s. Right. I mean, it's very. I mean, he died in 83. His last film is 82. I mean, he literally, you know, he probably just said to his agent, "I'll do anything." That sounded more like Bill Clinton than Slim Pickens, but. <laughs> <laughs> Hillary, I'll do anything. <laughs> well, I don't think he said that to Hillary. <laughs> um, so we have to talk about um, the third act and the ending. I think that I think that that's got to um, uh, that's got to sort of dominate the conversation. Um, so um, the crew of the intrepid Palomino decides they want to. Uh, you know, make like a, a tree and leave. Um, uh, Reinhardt doesn't want them to go. Um, and then th- he basically tries to keep them. There's a lot of shooting. Uh, and then, of course, they all fly into the black hole in, in, in various uh, spaceships. I didn't understand why, um, why. Reinhardt even wanted the Palomino crew on board in the first place. I think they 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 tried to explain it by saying he wants to uh, he wanted them to film the thing. Why? But it, it no, doesn't I mean, make any I mean, sense. I, I agree with you. They said that, but why would he care? He hasn't bothered with people for twenty years. He, suddenly, he wants a film crew. Maybe he needs more parts for the androids. Yeah, I don't know. It didn't make sense. And then after sort of like you know, sort of a la Trelane. Uh, in Star Trek, treating them to a great meal, I'll just kill y'all. You're like, what? <laughs> why? Why would he do that? Like, he did nothing. Made any sense? Uh, you are correct. <laughs> um, and uh, and then there's you know, 
the the one no, guy. No, you know what made sense? Uh, you forgot. You know what made sense? The money. Uh, the the ESP. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Don't forget. Right. And yet, and yet somehow they were able, she had ESP not with another person, but with a robot. Kate. Right. That makes even more sense. Right, right, right. I don't understand how you could know what a robot's thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. And they use it as a primary plot device because that's how basically Vincent informs her that that the they're um, in danger. Her and- father, right? That everybody that the the, the you know, the robots are people or they're in whatever semi human and they're the dead crew that were killed and I mean it. Oh God. Anyway, yeah, it just I don't know. Like it was strange. Um, and then there's a lot of shooting and then and and. Uh, Maximilian, paradoxically, kills the only human who was on Reinhardt's side. Right. Right? He kills Anthony Perkins for basically no reason. Yeah. Um, I think it's to establish that Maximilian really could go over the line and kill somebody, but it would have made, honestly, more sense if he killed almost any other character. Than the one yeah. guy who was in their corner. I don't get it. Yep, that um, doesn't make sense. And the all the firefights are incredibly dull. They're old and, west. They're old west shootouts. You know, they're poking really their old, like, they're poking their heads out from behind. You know, a pillar to try to shoot somebody. Oh, it's um, awful. And the the villain robots are incompetent. And, yeah, and they, and they don't feel menacing. You're not afraid. You know. Yeah, not at all. You know, like Nomad was scary. Like when Nomad mm-hmm. killed Scotty, he meant business. You know, these robots, meh. Um, so I have a question for you, and I know the answer, but I'm curious of what your take was on it. Um, they appear to be able to breathe in vacuum in the last half of this oh, film. Oh, in the end? The entire last half of the film. Yeah, there's a big hole there's in an the enormous ceiling or something, hole. There's right? a hole the size of our junior high school in yeah. this spaceship. And there's, like, scenes of people floating out through the framework of the ship into space, yet there's air. Right. That was so ridiculous, it took me a while to realize it. Because I don't think I realized it till people started flying off into the black hole directly from the ship. Right. And then I kind of, I had the same realization you did. But, you know, at that point... I'd had enough already, so <laughs> you were so far gone. <laughs> right. I mean, at that point, what's one more inconsistency? Right, know? but that's a big inconsistency. I mean, when that even as a kid, sure. even as a kid, when that meteor there's so as they're flying into the the black hole, out of nowhere, bright orange meteors uh <laughs> appear, one of which holds the ship and uh rolls through it, destroying everything in its path. Uh, and you know, I, I, you know, like the movie should have just ended right there. Like, oh, they're all dead. You know, like huh, there was a big hole in the ship and they all died. Uh, right. <laughs> that should, I mean, think about it. That's the end of the movie, but they're all able to no breathe way. in vacuum. Uh, and their hair barely gets must. You yeah. Know? I think their hair actually looks better. <laughs> and, and plus like Maximilian shell floats with, to, like somehow joins together oh, wait, with the wait, robot. Wait, you're, you're getting ahead of us. We, we haven't oh. we haven't entered the black hole yet. So oh, I was okay. I was so flummoxed uh, <laughs> by this by this lack of oxygen 
<laughs> piece of the movie that I did some looking online, and it turns out there's an actual explanation for it. And the explanation you don't say no, no, but there's not a in the not, there's not an explanation within the world of the movie. There's a real world explanation for why. And what happened was they were supposed to be in vacuum, and they were gonna put on spacesuits, and the casts refused because the spacesuits looked so ridiculous <laughs> that the cast basically said we're like these lines are bad enough we can't deliver these lines in that spacesuit so they just kept going and they just kept filming the scenes that were supposed to take place in spacesuits without them they're they're in shirt sleeves you know <laughs> can you imagine after the rest of the stuff the cast did in this movie and the dialogue that they went through it spent a few months you know reciting what that must have looked like if they had refused to wear those. <laughs> yeah, I think they... <laughs> I mean, their standards are already incredibly low, right? So can you... I mean, I would love to see the uh, the spacesuits. Yeah, I think that they were just... They were super bulky and cumbersome. They were probably really hot. Like, right. they made them really hot. Yeah, so, but they just, you know... So that's why. That's the actual reason why the last you know half hour of this movie they're in the vacuum. There's some other sort of inconsistencies too. And in like for example, Bob gets shot, um, and before Bob dies, you know, there's like sort of like a long sequence where the Bob robot is damaged, and then there's a scene where I believe Kate and the Robert Forster character are carrying him, like they're physically carrying the Bob prop as if it's so weak he can't go on, and yet a few minutes later he can fly. Like, I was, like, there's a, clearly, like, there's some editing or some discontinuity there, but, it, like, he's he's on death's door, then he's better again, and then he dies. He, quote-unquote, dies. Right. He dies just like in the old, on an old Western, you know, says, leave me here and go on. Right, right. The old, I'll never forget you. Although yep. you actually will forget everything the minute you turn off, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh, another another thing. When they when they turn on the spotlight, when they're they're flying up to the uh the what the big ship the probe what the ship. called. The probe ship? The, no, in the beginning of the movie. Oh the same they, they, there's this the Cygnus, yeah, they go, he, they go like activate the micro beam, and then it's like it's a spotlight, like the micro beam, right? So I remember when I heard that you line, I remember seen, thinking, you like, I haven't seen the macro beam, it was even more impressive. <laughs> well, can you imagine in 2001, you know, like Dave, like, Hal, activate the micro beam, like, you know, you can't have a bigger contrast than that, activate the micro beam. Right. And even, you know, their their enunciation is even, it's just, it's incredible. Oh, jeez. So, it's painful. So at this point, uh, Ernest Borgnine has, has fled the movie. <laughs> he's, he's destroyed right. the Palomino. And then the Cygnus has been holed by a meteor <laughs> with yet retained its air. Um, right. And, and then everything starts to crumble. Right. And then they're, you know, they're, they're literally the, 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 the set, the, sorry, the, they're striking the sets. <laughs> <laughs> the crew is striking the sets while the movie is being filmed. Um, uh, Maximilian Shell is crushed under a gigantic iPad that falls from the ceiling. Um, although he's not dead, oh. he's just trapped under it. 
he's getting much better. Right. And then right and and then there's that super dramatic little short scene where the, his 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 creations won't help him. Right. Yeah. That'll learn ya. <laughs> and then they realize that there's another ship um and they run to this uh, small probe ship which is perhaps the most 50s, the good guys yeah right, the, the good, good guys, guys try to uh, yeah. run to this probe ship which is which looks like it's literally straight out of a 50s sci-fi movie it, it probably mm-hmm. the prop probably is a reuse from you know this island earth or some such um <laughs> and then everybody flies into uh, the black hole, but you know, I guess they kind of had to. Like, if if somebody didn't fly into the black hole in this movie, the audience would have been upset. Although they actually did go in, and I distinctly remember when we walked out of this. I mean, I was as you know mired in science fiction as a ten year old could be when I saw this, and I distinctly remember walking out and saying to my father, "What happened in the end of this movie?" You know, and I probably watched you know. 500 hours of sci-fi. I was well-versed in sci-fi concepts, but this one completely went past me. Right, and, and you weren't interested either because, you know, it's not like the ending of 2001 when he goes through the Stargate. He ages, right, when you can't turn away. Room. Yeah, and, and it's not like that's very obvious what's going on. And as a matter of fact, people are still kind of talking about it, right? Right. Or at least, at least we yeah. are. <laughs> I shouldn't say people. Um, and, but on the other hand, uh, that's, I actually find that interesting. I have no interest in figuring out what they were trying to say <laughs> in, this, in the black hole. I remember that the, the scene where they go through the black hole was very, very long, but it's actually about three minutes. It just, it felt very long. But like when I was watching it this time with the, you know, the counter running on the, on the, the DVD, like I was like, oh, it's just a couple of minutes. But I remember at hmm. the time that it seemed like it was just this long drawn out scene. I mean, kind of the only conclusion that I can reach, I mean, you, you may disagree. The only conclusion that I can reach is that well we have to say what happens and we'll say uh so so uh, maximilian and dr reinhardt are merged in what is uh, supposed to be an unhappy marriage um, and there's like a gandalf floating around like he turns gray like he becomes gandalf the gray right or gandalf the white at some point right and then, and then they are merged then they in, merge. in what can only be described as hell and he is sort of ruling over the the tortured souls of his crew uh, right. And then our our intrepid heroes pass through a cathedral with an angel. Like there is an angel shown flying in front of them, uh, and they well, are. I, I, I didn't even. I missed. That. There is an angel. Not that I'm surprised. Although but. there is an angel that has long hair and a flowing sort of garment that flies hmm. with them through the stellar, the interstellar or celestial temple, um, to borrow a term from Deep Space Nine. Um, and then they are delivered out into the bright white light of some star. By the way, you're the first person that has ever borrowed a term from Deep Space Nine. <laughs> oh. That's never happened before. Hopefully it won't happen again, but I can't make any promises. Um, and, and so what I was going to say is the black hole is God who sits in judgment of them, essentially. Right. I mean, that's kind of like the only, the only, um, the only explanation I could kind of come up with watching it. 
Well, look, you know, there's a bunch of kids watching the movie and it's Disney, you know, so they got to tell the kids that if you're going to kill your whole crew and turn them into semi into zombie robots, badness will ensue. You're going to be bad. You're going to be merged with a robot and go to hell. But it's an extremely Christian interpretation of an interstellar, like of a stellar phenomena, you know, (laughs) like black holes. It's a, you know, like it's a very Christian way to do it. You know, like our pulsar is Jewish. I don't know. You know, like. Like, like it, like the movie, which is essentially a, a sci-fi movie, is steeped in this sort of you know symbolism for the last five seven minutes. Like it just comes out of nowhere, right? It makes you wonder, yeah, well, like, did they not know how to end it? By the way, I you know it's worth just commenting that two movies in 1979 end with a human being merging with a robot. This and Star Trek: The Motion Picture, where Ilya and Decker right. merge. That's right. Although technically it's not Ilea and Decker, it's Decker and Viger. You know, he thought he was merging yeah, with Viger. versus Cambada. Then he realized he was, when he did it, he was like, oh, wait, I, I, I merged with Voyager. <laughs> ah, crap. Now I, got pl- now I got a plutonium power plant up my ass. <laughs> he would have rather merged with uh, Ilea. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. What's your take on the end? That was my take on the end. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably that they're they're moralizing in one sense or another, and that that's how you moralize. You know, it's a it's an American mainstream movie, and uh, I I don't think they were. I think they're they're not literally doing that. I think they're using the kind of symbolism, and that's the that's the symbolism and the mythology that they're using to express uh, what happens to the good and the bad. And the 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 probe when it exits, they don't really explain where it is they're sort of head towards this star and that's it right and you don't so know you don't, you don't know what that star is you don't know where they are and you they just don't know obviously either. they're not in hell right i mean you can't tell are they are they going to get home are they somewhere new i mean that part's extremely unfulfilling because clearly they survive and in a sense the crazy evil scientist was right because his programmed course uh his his mathematics to get through a black hole uh and survive work and they do get through but you have no idea where they're going so his whole premise about what's going to happen and the, the mysticism of the black hole and the science fiction of the black hole that doesn't really exist in the movie is never brought to fruition and there's no uh, it, it. Essentially, the movie isn't really about a black hole at all. No, the bl- it's not. There's at no all. black hole. I mean, it it is a science fiction movie because it it has the the trappings the typical, of one. Right, it has the elements of a science fiction movie, um, but uh, it it the black hole it, they they. They could have been anywhere. It could have been a, a movie near an exploding planet. It could have been anything that's that's dangerous um, that they're near would have sufficed. Even a planet that they just fell onto the planet would have sufficed. Um, you know, there's there's no. Uh, it, it was the movie's not about a black hole. No, no. It, it's honestly, it's not even really clear what the movie is about. Right, it's not about anything, and it's, it's really doesn't have any about characters. Reinhardt's punishment for his actions, and the crew just sort of gets caught up into it. You know, the, the crew essentially just sort of stumbles into this plot and merchandising, right? <laughs> Vincent toys. Um, the the novelization, and I, I kid you not, 
written by Alan, Alan Dean, Dean Foster. Foster. <laughs> the novelization. Yeah, he wrote a different ending, right? He did have a different ending, which honestly is a bitter ending, I guess, I guess for a book, which is that that they they sort of, the, our heroes have some sort of merged consciousness and their passage through the black hole bestows upon them um, sort of um, omniscience, uh, at least while they're in the black hole. Yeah, it's a little more 2001-y. It is a little more 2001, and and, and maybe they backed away from it because it was almost too big an ending or too obtuse an ending, although the ending they chose was certainly not, you know, not a lot less, not more concrete, I should say. Um, right. Have you ever read uh, Heads by Greg Bear? No. Heads by Greg I've Bear read is, some of his stuff, but... it's, a, it's a novella, and it's about uh, all those people who had their heads frozen a la Futurama. Um, you know, right. in cryogenic so that they could hopefully be revived. It's about how all these heads are on the moon and like, but no one knows what to do with them. Uh, and, and simultaneously they are searching for a way to reach absolute zero uh, and temperature wise. And at the end of the, the novel, they reach absolute zero and everything freezes. But in the, in the time when they reach absolute zero, the protagonists are able to, uh, understand the thoughts and the memories of all the heads. Sort of a similar idea to what uh, Alan Dean Foster had in the novelization of this. Like, you know, mm-hmm. when you're in that transi- transitory phase, you have knowledge you otherwise would not have access to. Hmm. But uh, if you ever get a chance, read Heads. It's quite good. I mean, almost almost everything Greg Bear touches is really good. But Yep. Um, I don't know. You know... Uh, I remember as a kid not knowing if I liked this. Like when it was over and we walked out, like we had a big discussion in the car, me and my brother and my father about sort of what, what happened. And then that was unusual. Usually we walked out of movies and we, you know, you got it. But this was kind of like, you know, even a 10-year-old could see that this was muddled. Yeah. And I it, know. I mean, the the thing that's ironic to me is the way I look at it, is that Disney tried to join join the party in the late 70s. They made a movie that was 25 years, it behind, felt 25 years out of time. date. Right, behind its time. And then they, they, they finally caught up, what, 35 years later when they buy Lucasfilm. Right. Well, it took right, them, you know, they, they never, <laughs> right. that's how they did it. If you can't beat them, join them or own them. Right, and it took them a long time. And they're going to make a Star Wars movie every year for the next twenty years. They're gonna they're gonna turn into a franchise like Marvel. You know, they're gonna make a whole bunch of spinoffs, and um, maybe they'll be good. Even some of them. I mean, we're I we're know. having this conversation the week before <clears throat> Rogue One comes out, and Rogue One is predicted to make three hundred and fifty million at least. Right. Although it costs seven hundred million to make, <laughs> probably. <laughs> um. Uh. You know, this is also, you know, this is December. This came out in December. This was a Christmas movie, uh, which perhaps explains the Christian ending, uh, or at least mm-hmm. why they decided to release it at Christmas time. But, you know, this this comes out, you know, seven months after Alien. And, and you know, I, Alien dominated my thoughts watching this, how utterly believable and immersive an experience Alien was. Uh, and how distant I felt from these people. You know, you know them about as much time. Aliens about two hours long. 
Um, mm-hmm. And this is a little bit over 90 minutes. Um, and like, for example, you know, you don't really care if anybody in this movie lives or dies with the exception of Vincent. Um, whereas an alien, you know, when they, when they sort of start doing 10 little Indians and they're, picking off the cast one at a time like it is terrifying and you you know you're heavily yep. invested in them you know especially ripley you know and when ripley yep. is fighting for her life in the big scene at the end i mean you are on the edge of your seat whereas here you know you're looking at your watch you know yeah. is, well, is it over i've gotten over? past that say again i was i was past looking at my watch i think i was con- uh, contemplating suicide <laughs> But fortunately for our listeners, you you were able to hold back. Well, they can judge. They could judge for that. They may they may have been disappointed that I didn't go through with it. I don't know. Any uh, I don't know. You know, is by the way, it's worth stating this is Disney's first live action movie. Good job, Disney. Um, did Disney make another side? I guess Tron. Tron comes on the heels. So Disney Tron. did Disney did uh make another foray into science fiction in a in not too far off the time. When is Tron 82 83 84? I don't think it's even that far. I think it's pretty early. But um yeah, Disney eventually, you know, made uh Buena Vista and Mir bought they bought Miramax, right? I don't think they st- they didn't start Miramax, but they bought Miramax and and uh, and Buena Vista was their their adult film um, non cartoon distribution. Right. And of course, they've acquired a number of other things uh, over time because they're a huge successful company, you know, over the decades. Right. Tron, but, Tron uh, yeah, is eighty. Tron is eighty two. Although, you know, did 82. you know that they released another sci fi film in nineteen seventy nine? Unidentified oh. flying oddball. <laughs> oh boy! Starring uh, uh, no one you've ever heard of. <laughs> well, they should have had no one would ever heard of in this movie too. Oh, you know what? But you know, it's funny. I read that this was their first human uh, non-animated movie, but that's just not true. Like I'm looking through, they also had the cat from outer space uh, <laughs> in 1978, which stars. Sandy Duncan and Roddy McDowell. Oh my God! Ah, he must he have is. had a two-picture deal. Jeez, what happened to Roddy McDowell? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, well, that—that's another. I guess that's the topic. That when we do Planet of the Apes, we'll have to touch on Roddy McDowell. Um, yeah, but uh, ugh, I don't know. This that's was 1968. You know, I'm glad we picked it, and I'm glad we did it, and I'm glad we never have to talk about it again. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm going to bring it up once in a while just to uh, be an asshole. <laughs> uh, I'm looking to see if what other sci-fi movies Disney made. They made Tron. They made their Tron sequel. They had a lot of light sci-fi movies, you know, mm-hmm. like um, um, Witch Mountain, Return to Witch Mountain, stuff like that, uh, which I believe is Disney. Um, yeah. Um you know, like, you know, sci-fi, like, it's not their forte, you know? Like, they don't, it's just, it's not in their wheelhouse. Well, why didn't they make some cartoon sci-fi? Yeah, which honestly would have been a lot easier for them. And they would have I been just, they I, would have been on much more familiar territory. And they could have, you know, you could, they could have done anything. They could have picked up any theme. They could have made whatever characters they wanted to make. And then nobody would... 
hold him to the same standards as having Ernest Borgnine and Robert Forster running around. Yeah. I, you know, if, I, I know. looked online. I didn't really find much in the way of interviews with the actors. It would be interesting to see what the actors had to say about this after the fact. You know, like, did they know, like, oh, it's bad? Or they were they just like, no hey, comment. we're riding the wave, you know? Sci-fi yeah, is big. They said no comment. <laughs> What they said. Let's talk about uh, uh, another movie I did instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, so next time we'll we'll try to return to something more, uh, something better. Yeah, but again, I think it's important to talk about, I mean, whether it's a good movie or a bad movie, this is an important movie in the sense that it was a big sci-fi epic of the 70s and, you know, it turned a profit and it certainly, you know, it made a big splash and people talked about it. And again, it's not sure. it's not wholly unredeeming. I don't know. It's very hard to say a movie is wholly unredeeming. It has a few good moments in it. And again, you know, a few good effects. And I think the Vincent prop is great. If I had forty thousand laying around, I might have I might have put a bid in on Vincent. But although I'm not quite sure what I'd do with it. Listen, if you had to spend money on a prop, you're telling me you wouldn't buy something else instead of no, Vincent. No, of course not. But I, I mean, I'd buy something from Star Trek: The Original Series. Although forty thousand dollars gets you like. Like a tiny little piece of the Ozide carpet from the bridge. <laughs> so money doesn't money doesn't go very far when you talk about original uh, the original series props, but that that could be another podcast. Um, oh, by the way, uh, last thought. By the way, uh, same year seventy nine, Mad Max. I mean, talk about where sci fi oh was God. going in seventy nine, uh, and to think yeah. that this was the movie that closed out nineteen seventy nine science fiction. Is incredible. All right, any uh, any final thoughts? Nope. See you next time. All righty. All right. Thanks. Take care.